Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. As the coronavirus crisis intensifies, the government finds itself under new pressure. There's been a weekend of really critical coverage of its handling of the outbreak, which has prompted it in a very unusual way to publish long, very long rebuttals on its websites. But this week has brought no respite as more details come in about the procurement or failed procurement of personal protective equipment for health workers and the health secretary's target of 100,000 COVID tests per day keeps coming under a lot of scrutiny. That's the first thing we're going to talk about this week. And as the lockdown is extended with a full damage to the economy still impossible to estimate, but some very, very big numbers out there, ministers are facing more demands to spell out their exit strategy. That's the second question we'll discuss. And the third is what the opposition should do. Parliament is back in virtual form. And this week we saw new Labour leader Keir Starmer make his Prime Minister's Questions debut in the Zoom Parliament with not that many people there. We'll talk about what kind of opposition he should bring. Just to mention, you can get more insight into how government is handling this crisis from our sister podcast, IFG Live, the new home for all our panels, talks and events. And you can get that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get Inside Briefing itself or at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So let's say hi to today's panel. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, Times columnist and conservative peer. Danny, great to have you on board. Thank you for asking me. Are you a Zoom lord now? <laughs> I actually haven't um, uh, uh, tried it yet. I will uh, at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. And we've got John McTurnan, our senior fellow with us, who's also a consultant and a political strategist. It was Tony Blair's director of, of political operations back, back in the day. Hi, John. Hi, it's great to be on again. Great. Are you finding companies have an awful lot of questions about how they should deal with government on this? Well, I think people are people are finding that government is everywhere and suddenly they need to know uh, about government, manoeuvring government um, and just getting and helping people to connect uh, is uh, an increasingly important task at the moment. We'll, we'll come on to that. And Jill Rutter, IFG Associate Fellow, former civil servant, is here. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Hi, nice to be back. Does it feel odd that the word Brexit has disappeared from conversation? Uh, it does a bit. I mean, obviously, there are big other preoccupations, but it keeps on sort of popping up slightly. Yesterday, we had uh, what was being trailed around as a call by three former, three senior former mandarins that uh, we had to extend transition. I think as we hit uh, hit June, perhaps there will be a bit more Brexit going on. Of course, there are negotiations going on this week, even though they're extraordinarily under the radar. The Zoom negotiations, which hopefully they're mastering. Well, and June is when some of those deadlines, uh, in theory, um, start to bite. So that's when people ought to be looking at it. Yeah, June's supposed to be when we have a deal on fish. Uh, that doesn't look very much in prospect. And it's also the time when if the UK were going to ask for an extension or we'd find some other way that the two sides could agree an extension. Uh, if it's under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, that needs to be in place by the end of June. So 30th of June is a looming deadline. We'll set all those pleasures of talking about Brexit aside for the moment and go back to the crisis of the day. And we've had this extraordinary weekend, which I don't want to take up a whole podcast on, but it really was uh, unusual. There were several sustained criticisms in the media, particularly the Sunday Times and the Financial Times, of the government's general handling of the crisis, and in particular, its procurement of equipment. And what was unusual, though, is that the government went to such lengths to rebut this. D- Danny, what do, you, what do you make of that? Well, it's very hard to judge 
what the balance is between the Sunday Times criticisms, it was very good reporting, and the government's rebuttal. Uh, it's, I think the, there are two things which I objected to in the Sunday Times' story, but lots that I didn't object to. The two things I objected to was, first of all, the starting point, which is that Britain is doing particularly badly in this coronavirus crisis. I think it's simply too early to make that judgment. It may be correct. Uh, it may turn out when we look back that our own strategy in going to it late turns out to have been the wrong one. The advice wasn't taken or it was given in the wrong way. Um, uh, but that assumption, I think, which was the, the basis for writing this piece, uh, I didn't agree with. And I suppose an allied uh, a point, the second point, um, related to our ability to procure things like PPE. What I felt was missing was some sort of feeling for how well other countries are dealing with this. And I found it actually quite hard to find the pieces of journalism that will inform me about that. It's obvious that this PPE problem is a big problem all over the world. And if it's a big problem all over the world, then seeking our own failings in procurement, while important, don't only tell a small part of the story. However, as we develop an overall picture of how we're handling this, clearly reporting on our early failings and our early actions uh, in this field will be very important. It's important to do those while the cry. I don't agree with those people who say we shouldn't have any criticism while it's going on because we, you know, this is the moment to collect that information and the Sunday Times piece will prove seminal in doing that. But I think um, the narrative setting, uh, which has already started, that I'm much less comfortable with simply because all over the world, we are much too early in this. I believe strongly that we are only at the beginning of this uh, crisis and we simply don't know whether different strategies or uh, ways of working uh, will have proven better or worse. Obviously, we'll have made mistakes. Everyone will have done that. But the question of how they compare, I think that's much too early to judge. All right. So you said it doesn't really give you a sense of what is reasonable to expect at this point. And in fact, we can't even form that that kind of judgment at this yeah, point. I, I, I can't, I can't emphasise enough that I, that I think it's critical that, that journalists crawl over the government's activities from a sceptical point of view, probing for the holes, showing where the mistakes were made, and share that information with the public. And I think in that way, I think that's really important to do. Um, and it was riveting to read and will prove an important contribution to the debate we're about to have. So I really don't want to 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 uh, imply that, um, you know, a bridle at criticism that's made, but just in the same way that they're right to look uh, their right to provide their readers uh, with sceptical accounts of the government's attitudes. Their readers should read what they write with some eyes that, to the narrative, and you can stand outside it and read it with that uh, eye, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah, well, thanks for that, and I guess you, get, you count as perfect balance as a Conservative peer and also a Times staple uh, columnist, if, if I can say. So th thanks for that. Jill, you've written something for us, um, a comment piece, saying that you feel the government went over the top in, in going to such lengths in rebuttal. Why, why is that? Yes, I thought that it was uh, it was very strange. I mean, we are used to sort of political rebuttals of this sort, but for people in government to sit down and do a sort of point by point exercise of taking apart individual newspaper stories and posting it on .gov.uk, I thought was very odd, and I thought was sort of 
giving a signal that they were so sensitive to any sort of criticism that rather than put out the sort of usual story, uh, usual, yeah, yeah, we don't recognize some of the things in this, I'm not going to comment on inside gossip. They'd actually taken days and they did it both with the Peter Foster story about ventilators on, in the FT on Saturday and on Sunday with the Sunday Times insight piece to actually decide we're going to do forensic taking this apart just struck me as giving the impression, A, that they were super sensitive. B, you sort of think, well, don't we actually want you getting on with solving some of the very clear issues that you're having to deal with? Not necessarily, you know, condemnation of the fact you're not doing things, but there are some really important things to be getting on with rather than taking time to do that. John, what do, you, what do you make of this? There's been decades of the science of, of rebuttal and the government getting its 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 message and its narrative out, and the Blair government was was uh, no slouch at that. Uh, at that, what do you what do you make of this particular um, sort of encounter and and uh, and retort, if you like, over the the past few days? I thought it was incredibly misjudged to attempt rebuttal in this way. Um, there's really two tests. Uh, one is does it rebut? And two is, is it proportionate? And I don't think that inventing the notion of rebuttal blogs, particularly to focus on one journalist's tweets, which was done for the Financial Times, um, inventing a whole new genre of uh, government communications is proportionate, particularly at a time when the biggest central government communications task is about um, coronavirus. But the real question is, did they rebut the Sunday Times uh, article? And the answer is, if you're going to go for it, you've actually got to deal with a central point, which is um, the studied inaction of the Prime Minister. He's um, sequestering himself in checkers for a long period. In February, not uh, appearing in the floods, which were then uh, the dominant crisis in the country, um, not chairing COBRA for those, not chairing COBRA for, for anything. A prime minister has always got a lot on their plate. That's the, the you know, normally the chancellor makes one big decision a year, which is the budget, and the PM makes decisions every minute of the day. So it's not, it shouldn't have been a surprise to the prime minister that he had a lot of things on his plate. But if you're going to rebut an article, rebut it all or don't rebut at all. And that's the problem, which is there's a gaping hole in the rebuttal, which is, yeah, but what was the PM doing? Well, and, and, and the central point, I mean, for those people who haven't immersed themselves in the Sunday Times and, and Financial Times for the past week, the central point of the Sunday Times one, I can summarise what was a long, complex piece of reporting, was the Prime Minister's absence. And the central point of the Financial Times one was failures in procurement. But if you on, on that second point, the Department of Health put out on its website, very long uh, statement, but did say, look, um, people are saying we sh- shouldn't have shipped uh, procure- PPE equipment to China. They've shipped us far more. Here are the numbers. And that did seem to me the kind of rebuttal that might be useful of dealing with the detailed facts of this and saying the public perception might be wrong. The, the tone of the piece was not factual. It was scratchy. Uh, if you're going to correct the facts, then stick to the facts. If you're going to correct the politics, get a po- get a political voice to do that. This fell between those two, and it was really clear what motivated the rebuttal, uh, and it was really clear uh, that he didn't 
address everything. Kind of to, to, to a degree, it surprised me. I really disagree with John. Uh, but one thing more than the other. The bit where I really strongly disagree with him is on whether or not this was a sensible thing to do. My first reaction to reading it was, well, I hope the government's going to try and answer these points. And you can't leave them on the record. If you think that narrative, and I do, is very important in setting in, in, in the question of trust, it's much more important than any of the details. You can't just... Uh, allow a narrative to develop without attempting to uh, tackle it. So that was the first point. Um, so I, I strongly disagree. Where I slightly less strongly disagree is I think it leaves the question of whether or not the Prime Minister's involvement in this uh, was appropriate up in the air. I think all of us shared the view, well, probably on this call, not everyone, obviously, but on this on, on this podcast, uh, shared a, a question over whether Boris Johnson really had a grasp of detail when he became Prime Minister, whether he was really interested in it. And certainly this this seemed to play into the narrative of what we all thought might well be a deficiency of a Boris Johnson premiership. That having been said, I'm not at all convinced that any of the shortcomings of the government's approach have anything whatsoever to do with where Boris Johnson was or wasn't during that month. All of it is about whether or not we, we made the sensible and correct judgments during February about how serious this was likely to be. Um, now, that may have been made correctly, or it may have been made incorrectly. It looks like it was made incorrectly. Uh, but that incorrectness uh, probably hasn't got anything to do with the grip of the Prime Minister and whether he should have shown it. In other words, um, it may this narrative about Boris Johnson's behaviour may be true, but it may also be irrelevant. That's the reason why I slightly less uh, strongly uh, disagree with John on the second point. But on the first point... Uh, it's obviously the correct thing um, to do. And actually, uh, the reason why I'm a bit surprised to find myself disagreeing, I think one of the, the lessons of the Blair era was, um, which they learned between 1992 and 1997, after the 1992 elections, you have to come back with a factual and stronger rebuttal as you can muster. Now, I know John's point is he didn't think this was strong enough. That's because he disagrees with their underlying point. But I did think it was an attempt to tackle some of the questions. And certainly when I read yeah. it... I'm not, look, I, I'm not judge and jury in this uh, at all, but I must say on that point of the, the value of rebuttal, I'm, I'm with you, Danny, more than John and, and Jill, because it seems to me a narrative does get going. Uh, there's an enormous amount out on, on social media about allegations about, uh, about what has happened or not happened. And... The government, particularly on the, the, the health and the procurement side, did attempt to answer some of the detailed points and said, for example, look, a meeting didn't happen then, it happened you know, it happened later, and this, this is what we've done. Um, and, and so I, I would stand by their the need to get engaged in rebuttal. Um, but standing back from it almost a week later, it doesn't seem to me that they have entirely well, really begun to dispatch either of those two charges. Of Obviously, the Prime Minister is still ill. Um, so the question of, of, of does does that matter, but also of what is happening on the uh, procurement front. Um, Jill, do you, do, you, do you have any views on the procurement generally on which the IFG has written a vast amount? Uh, procurement's obviously quite difficult. I think one of the really interesting emerging themes, and as with so much, this may be an issue for the inquiry down the line, is that procurement seems to be much more difficult in England than in Scotland and Wales. And one of the things that is emerging, I thought was a very interesting story uh, in the Times yesterday about the military criticisms of the way in which NHS England goes about procurement. Clearly, there's been 
a big issue with centralization and those command structures. There may be some issues as well about just the capacity at the center to cope with what appear to be offers. I mean, Labour, the Labour Party is going very strongly on this idea that the government is being offered its kit by lots of British manufacturers who are ending up exporting because they just don't get an answer from the Cabinet Office. So I think there's some really interesting things about whether we have too centralised a structure to manage this and whether that's one of the reasons where I think we'll be looking again at the Lansley health reforms and whether those have helped the England response or hindered it. So I think there's some really, really interesting and, and there you've been made, when you're talking about that. the centre, you're, 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 you're particularly talking about the centre of, of, of government, but also there might be questions about the NHS itself. I think there's the organisation of there's the organisation of NHS England. I mean, there's, so there's yeah. a sort of mixture of being a centralised organisation through NHS England, but also this fragmentation because of the Lansley reform setting up all these individual trusts who seem to be competing against each other in some respects, compared to Scotland and Wales that have retained the older structure of a directly managed health service. And I think that's going to be one of the really interesting questions about yes. whether that so got point, in the point, way. Point, a point the IFG has, has made elsewhere, that uh, it will, even if Wales and Scotland are doing well in this, in health, they haven't always done well in the, the performance compared to England. Uh, in other respects. Anyway, all that stuff about, about health uh, performance and the structure of the NHS, we are definitely going to come to in a, another podcast. Can we turn to the, the substantial question of the exit strategy or whether there should be one at all? Um, lots and lots of calls for them, including an exit strategy, uh, including from Keir Starmer. Uh, the government, we understand, is now discouraging the phrase, wanting people to understand we're in it for a long haul. And uh, Danny, you, you wrote a column this week, and um, first with borrowing Churchill's phrase saying we're not even at the end of the beginning, just the beginning. And you were arguing that it's wrong to demand an exit strategy. And I thought that was a really uh, fascinating point. Why? I just don't, you know, like a lot of these things, we're not necessarily in a position to offer one. It's not that I'm against having a strategy for exit. I'm just saying let's make sure that we appreciate how difficult it is. It, it, in the end, we, we can't carry on being in lockdown forever. So we will have to release the lockdown. And we will do some things to minimise the danger that will pose to people when we do it. But if we mix more, more people will be infected. And if more people are infected, more people will die. There are some things that you can do. Uh, you can, uh, for example, differentiate in terms of age between people, or you can differentiate in terms of things that we lock down and things that we do not lock down. But ultimately, uh, if we, uh, particularly because I think the track and tracing uh, that everyone sees as our sort of as the deus ex machina is extremely difficult to make work and very risky and you lose control of it for five minutes and you everyone's got it again uh, because and then you've got a prospect of choosing between a second lockdown or carrying on um, I just um, I feel that if we, that we need to level with people that we are really raking rather than an exit strategy a big exit moral choice. Um, about the balance between the economy and um, safety, effectively. Um, and um, 
that I just wanted to there seemed to be a talk about how now that we've now that we've passed the peak uh, how can we um now release everything um safely and the answer is well we possibly we probably can't release everything safely uh, we can only release things riskily and therefore people need to know that uh, when agreeing or disagreeing about whether to release things but what does it really mean for the government to put that choice to to people um, well, because they, you know, you know, they obviously, as with many of these deeply political choices, people want both. They don't want more deaths, and they, they want life as they had it. They don't want more deaths, yeah, and they, they don't can't. want a hit to the economy. So, how does the government actually frame that 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 choice? I mean, the main main purpose I had was uh, in making clear that that was probably a choice. And um, one of the things that I think they should try to do is to reach an agreement with the opposition about this. Um, I think if we had political agreement, um, the the country would be a lot stronger for it. In other words, there was a recognition of the risk that we were about to take in releasing people from lockdown and an acceptance and agreement that we were doing um, broadly the right thing. And um, that would sort of, uh, we we would feel sort of morally and uh, socially stronger for having done it like like that. So I just, I, I don't want, um, the reason I wrote that piece was I think there was a lot of talk. I mean, George Fawkes, who's in the House of Lords, I have a lot of respect for, but he was calling for everyone to to show the government to show the light at the end of the tunnel. And all I was arguing was, you know, maybe there isn't. It's too early probably to see light. Um, and there's a lot of social restriction going, and the more social restriction we remove, um, the more we are going to risk ourselves and this is the reason why by the way in the earlier answer it's too early to tell whether we've done the right or wrong things because other countries are going to remove restrictions and face exactly well, the going, same i was thinking as you as you were talking that i mean one way the government could handle this is to look at how other countries are who are slightly ahead of us uh, in the sense of um time uh, grappling with us how they begin to lift restrictions and what the responses and so on. Um, But the alternative is that, you know, as the economic pain mounts, and we haven't really, I feel, begun to hear and feel that in terms of the huge job losses and the hit to many people's lives that that it is, you know, very likely going to come. Uh, As that begins to mount, um, they just uh, then kind of arbitrate between that pressure um, and and, and their sense of whether people really want us to avoid Deaths. I mean, John, if you if you were advising them, would you say how how can you, with all the uncertainties that Danny has, I think, very, very persuasively described, how would you try and respond to the desire for a plan? I would give people a plan, and the reason why I say that, and I thought Danny's was an excellent article this week. I'd give them a plan because at the moment they we have have got a pattern of the government being behind the public inaction. And that is a really dangerous place to be um, in any situation. So private sector firms like my own were were sending people to work from home before the government had a lockdown. Um, The public are adopting the wearing of masks before the the government say uh, it's probably a helpful thing to wear masks. If you want trust in really difficult, balanced and risky judgments, you should be ahead because that's where leaders should be rather than behind the public. That's the first point. And secondly, um, I I agree with Danny about um, sharing uh, information, bringing the the opposition uh, within and agreeing. I think this is actually the case for a coalition government. If If I was in government, I'd be saying, let's get 
uh, Labour into government with us to make this decision. Um, or let's form um, a national cabinet, which has the leaders of the devolved administrations in as equals the way they're doing in Australia. I would, I would do that because you need to share a lot uh, of the balancing of these decisions. But the third thing, and the most important thing, I think, in the end is, if I was the government, I would show my working. And what is really clear is they're very, very uh, cherry about explaining why they came to decisions, even to the point that the, that the, that the members of SAGE, uh, are, we don't know who they are. There's, if, you, if you show you're working show, and show the balancing, then you can draw more people uh, in, into this decision-making. But I agree with you that we are at the very edges of understanding what this means. And there's, some, there's a huge dissonance between uh, a debate where a backbencher uh, comes on the, the radio, BBC radio, uh, in the morning and talks about oh, reopening DIY shops and garden centres, well, at the same time, uh, there's a report the Treasury have rebuffed uh, support for the higher education sector, our universities, which is not just one of Britain's great export sectors, but is also one of the drivers of uh, regional prosperity and is going to be key to anything that remains of the levelling up agenda. So opening more of these questions up and, and, and more widely, they are real questions, they are real decisions to be made, and there will be, uh, no, as Danny said, in life, risk can't be abolished. It can simply be mitigated. And you have to draw people into the choices that they're going to make and say to them, uh, unfortunately, as um, uh, Bronwyn, you pointed out, you can't have the both things you want. And the difficulty is treating individuals, um, citizens, um, uh, as adults, you can point out to them, you know, you don't make black and white choices in your own family life or in your own work life we can't make black and white choices. This is shades of grey. Life is shades of grey. Now, we were all doing the right thing in this phase. Let's all work out how we do collectively the right thing for the next phase. Jill, what do you, again, would you advise the government on the development uh, plan? I usually agree with Danny's articles, but actually I didn't disagree. I didn't agree with his article this week because actually I think there are things that government can and should be doing. And I think it goes a bit to what John has been saying about showing your workings. I think the government clearly is going to have to make a lot of really quite granular decisions to balance risks and advantages. And I think it needs to know lots more. Uh, and it can, as you said, Bronwyn, learn from what other countries are doing as they emerge from complete restrictions, which have been more severe in many cases than the UK's. You can learn from some of the things like actually what happens when you open schools. I think that's a very interesting thing to know. You know so should we go there? Can you convince parents that it's safe to send their children back into class? Is it really risky for people to wander around a garden centre? Uh, is it really risky to be out in the open air? Some of the sort of restrictions on leisure activity that we've seen. And so I think we need some more granular information on that. But I also think the government needs to have a view on where it may be heading, because there's some really critical dependencies, like if we're going to do something that depends on contact tracing, that's something that I think people are trailing in the papers today, then you need to be recruiting and setting up contract tracing infrastructure. We lost control uh, after the sort of initial containment strategy 
at the end of February. We couldn't then, we then switched tactic on the 12th of March on tracing. If we're going to go back to something that looks a bit more like a road to South Korea, we need to have that capability available. We need the testing capability, John Newton saying we're getting that. So I think the government does need to start assembling the building blocks of how it thinks it might manage, not a complete exit. That's that's never going to be there. And but so the plan, next phase it, with different restrictions. Yeah. And I, I think your description of the tracing um, and how the governments are, you know, move back and forwards on on this, but might, you know, that, that is one answer to what a plan uh, for exit uh, from, from this might look like. Um, I guess there are economic answers too. I mean, some of the discussion we're having, uh, say, about the universities, whether there need to be some sectors um, uh, protected uh, more urgently, more completely than others. Um, but that is a very, it seems to me, the very, it is incredibly difficult to have this economic discussion when the numbers are almost meaningless, except that they're very, very large. And it's it's really about trying to preserve what comes back of, from the economy um, from this period of, of um, suspension without really being able to attach meaningful numbers to um, to the size of the damage. Uh, and we don't really have a sense of, of, of that yet. I mean, Danny, how do you think the government ought to frame this the economic choice? Where I agree with John quite strongly is I do think the working on economics uh, is valuable. Unfortunately, when you start to talk about um, lives in economic terms, uh, people find that very hard to um, accept. Um, and even though it's obvious that um, you know there's an economic cost uh, that an economic costs um, costs lives, uh, people don't really uh, find it. They're not comfortable, and you know I think for kind of fairly laudable reasons, we're talking about lives in that way. Nevertheless, I think that uh, giving people some idea of the cost that it may impose to on people's lives as well as their livelihoods uh, to carry on lockdown in certain different ways. The modelling in that area would be good to share. We ought to have a debate that concerns itself with both halves of the equation, and at the moment we don't. And I think, I think a good start to this would be, and I've been arguing this pretty much from the beginning, would be the sort of modelling that Imperial College did in terms of the impact on the NHS, we ought to do now in terms of the relationship between the economy and people's lives. As you said, it's uncomfortable vocabulary. No government want, wants to rush to use that kind of vocabulary of the value of a life, and, and people are very understandably recoil from it. But um, I, I guess there are the ways in which these choices are, are beginning to come into focus. For example, the, uh, the bodies representing um, if you like, diseases other than COVID have said, look, don't let um, so many people die of these other things that um, uh, that, that it eclipses the lives saved from COVID. So it's it's it, even without pound signs, that kind of choice is, is perhaps becoming a bit clearer. Lives. Yeah, lives versus lives. And that's how you need to present it to people. But I certainly think we need to begin to have that. And that's the argument for showing more working. Some of that showing more working debate is just about having something to say. And actually, if we knew all the members of SAGE, I'm not sure we'd actually really be that much better off. Obviously, we'd be able to ring around and uh, find out what the different members of SAGE thought in order to show what the variety of opinion is. And I suppose that has that has helped. And, and certainly the Times' view is 
been that we should know that. And journalists always think that, and I'm no different in that respect. So yeah, sure, I'd like to know that. But I'm a bit more sceptical about the real help that would provide. What I do think would be very helpful is if the government began to show its workings in terms of what the economic impact will mean for people's for, for health in, in future, so that we're beginning to have a proper trade-off conversation. Let's come on to the final thing I wanted to talk about, which is the opposition. And John was touching on whether or not um, this idea of, of the Conservative reaching across the aisle had any appeal for either either of the main political parties. And, and Danny, I'd also love within this your your view on what this means for the Conservative agenda. But should, should we start with this this view? Um, and and the, you know, it, it's bubbled up through all this of whether some kind of national unity government or something a more formal political pact than the the Cobra meetings and the briefings to the opposition which are going on something something more formal to show in public support from both main parties for this do, do you think this could work well okay, let's see what what it is that a national government would bring to the government of the day uh, first of all a, a government with a majority of, of 80 yeah. yes first of all, it doesn't obviously bring them a majority so secondly because they've got one already secondly it clearly doesn't bring them um as it did in 1940 and it did in 1915 uh, the ability to prolong a parliament that was already reached its end and that was one of the main reasons for doing it. And thirdly, quite interestingly, it doesn't bring what it brought in 1940, which was the basic support of working class, of the working class, which was necessary in order to mobilise the country's labour force for a war. Uh, so all the circumstances, in my view, that, that brought it um, uh, brought in 1915 and 1940, um, that made it valuable to the government, uh, do, do not exist. And there was one more thing. Uh, it was used because they wanted to replace the prime minister or in 1915 case, uh, it massively increased the dynamism of the government. So it was a symbol of defeat. Um, and the government will feel it's not at that point. Right? Other people may disagree, but it, it will feel it's not at that point. So um, it doesn't bring any of those things, but it does bring one other thing, right, which is um, the support of the opposition for the extremely difficult moral judgment that I think is ahead of it. So what I've wondered is whether or not it's possible to produce that uh, assistance without creating a national government, which the government will be resistant to and doesn't see any other reason for uh and um because you do lose something if the opposition gets goes into government you lose the opposition uh and you hand that task maybe to you know for example back to jeremy corbyn or a small minority in parliament as indeed happened in the early years of the war so i'm not sure you would that that that, that cost is worth paying so my view has been is it possible to bring in the uh opposition in maybe some sort of national emergency committee to consider the specific issues surrounding what's called exit strategy or what might be or basically the consideration of whether to end the lockdown in conditions of high risk. Um, I think there is an advantage to doing that. You do not need to create a national government in order to do that. Um, but uh, I think the value of it is sufficient that I'm certainly willing to, you know, to, to enter into a constructive discussion with other people about whether or not I'm wrong, and you need a national government to do that. John, does that square with what you're thinking? I suppose I start. I start there's there's two things to say to to, to 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 what Danny said, which is that every 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 historical conjuncture is different, uh, and that you could argue now that actually um, the one thing that you would want the Labour Party for 
is to bind in um, the metropolitan middle classes who are now the labor the labor base um, and they're actually they're actually but they're actually very, they're actually very important you know we've given away that we've swapped bases with the Tory party they've taken uh, the working class uh, and labor's taken the middle class um, so if you're looking in, in that class formation terms that you say that I'd say actually every history, every every moment is different and you'd need to think about what is the actual challenge? Do we need to change the prime minister? No. Do we need to bring more vigor to government? Possibly, but no. Um, do we uh, need to actually make some really difficult decisions that you want to put beyond politics? Yes, we have difficult decisions, but no, you don't want to put them beyond politics because all of politics is a contest uh, about the allocation of resources. Uh, across regions, across time, across gender, across nations, whatever. So because we have these inherently political decisions, you can't in the end say we'll be led by the science. Uh, we aren't, we're not being led by the science absolutely at the moment, even when it is science, because you can't be. And we're definitely not going to be led by the science when we move on to economics. Um, there's, there can be huge political judgments to be made. In that, I agree with Danny that if we that we need to find a political process um, to create consent for the decisions. Not a consensus where an individual or minority can block, but consent that there's been a process uh, which is constitutional, which we can respect as a way of deciding this is the way that we in Britain, in the UK, are going to take ourselves to the next stages of what is going to be a long period um you know we're moving from now to next but we don't know how long the next the, the next phase uh will be I, I once talked to a leading member of the chinese communist party and said isn't don't you find it um uh, strange that you're um that you're so good at capitalism but you're a communist party and this this, this leader corrected me and said <laughs> well uh marx always said that um communism comes after the capitalist phase I just think that the capitalist phase may take longer uh, than you might have anticipated. And I think this next phase may take longer. And so um, the thing that I think you've, you've, you've kept pointing to, Brom, and the, the, almost the impatience, which is almost it's generated a bit by 24-7 media, it's uh, generated a bit in individuals of us by Amazon Prime, the fact that we can get something new the next day. We're kind of anxious for a solution, a quick solution. Well, part of this is going to be telling the public that this is very gradual and it's going to be risky for a long time. And those decisions, we need to, whether it's a you know whether it's a parliamentary process, committees of the of both the houses, whatever it is, it needs to be one that shows the working, that brings people in, that's willing to hear the arguments that have to be made. And then, and I think this is the government fear, and it would be my it would be my fear if I was in government. The fear is that you can that you will slow decision making down by involving more people. And the actual truth is you can delegitimize decision-making by excluding people. And it's finding, it's finding the way to create legitimation of really complex, and you can't look at the country. All right, but, but also they, they might fear looking weak for turning to the opposition for help, if you like. Um, if they get it right, it would look like legitimization. Um, 
No, I, I see what you're saying, but I absolutely see that, that, why, that why they might resist it. And, and with your eloquence, John, you've taken us sailing past all kinds of things that could be a whole podcast in themselves, like whether politics is just about the allocation of resources rather than freedoms and uh, wealth generation and all kinds of other things. Danny, sorry, I interrupted. Now I want to ask John about the devolved nations. Can I apply the odd uh, note to this? And maybe this is a bit naive. I, I also think it's... Um, Profoundly unfair to Keir Starmer and to the Labour front bench to expect them to, um, to 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 make a decision about how to position themselves on this without including them in the decision. Um, it, you are basically asking you not you're asking them to decide on this huge matter whether to throw themselves behind the government without actually formally uh, seeking their agreement. Um, and involving them in some sort of discussion. Now, I know the problem uh, will be that um, during the discussion had with Keir Starmer over Brexit, you know, the, the government, admittedly it was different government, different people in the head, but it was a similar experience, didn't feel that he negotiated politically in good faith. But actually, I, you know, as a naive though it would be, I think on this he would do, uh, and therefore... Um, it isn't entirely fair to him to expect uh, national support for the policy, which we'll kind will need without actually mm. seeking his agreement to it. Uh, and this may seem, you know, politically... public agreement because we know that there are a lot of briefings to the opposition that be going on for weeks and weeks and weeks over this. But you mean without sure. without without soliciting the the public agreement? Well, public or, or or indeed actually discussing with him in private what his perspective is, as well as briefing him on what yeah. the government is doing. Yeah. yeah. And Jill, um, just, we're going to have to wrap this up in a second, but I really wanted to know what you thought about how the government might work with the uh, governments of the devolved nations of the, uh, of the UK, which, and you've been doing a lot of work for us on Northern Ireland. Um, how do you think it's gone so far? And is there anything about this conversation we've just had um, that you think should be extended to them? Uh, I think actually that's the more productive way than talking to the official opposition or giving them a role in government. I can't actually see, though, John might have a view on why Keir Starmer would say yes if the government, I mean, he'd find it very difficult not to say yes, but I think uh, it'd be quite a quite a difficult offer to the official opposition. But I do think there's a very strong case, as John was suggesting they've done in Australia, for formalising the relationship and the involvement of Nicola Sturgeon, of course, if you brought Labour in, you'd immediately have the question about the SNP sitting in Westminster, where they should be part of a government of national unity as well. But uh, bringing in Nicola Sturgeon, bringing in Mark Drakeford, bringing in Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill, because I think we're beginning to see bits of signs of fracturing between the approaches. We've heard that Nicola Sturgeon, I think, as we're recording this, is supposed to be releasing Scotland's view of how does it move beyond, uh, beyond lockdown. So I think ideally you want those going in step. And I think the other people and the other place to bring Labour in is to involve some of the big sort of beasts that we've got in the mayoralities, bringing in Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan has been attending some Cobras, and Andy Street as Mayor of West Midlands. Interesting question about how do you get, how do you get uh, the non-metropolitan areas in? But I think those people who actually have been elected and have executive authority are really important players potentially in the next phase where we may be going for some sort of regional differentiation, where we may be going requiring them to do things locally. So I think that would be actually be 
a, a sort of executive committee of those people would actually be a better way forward because then that would leave Labour able to do the constructive opposition, which actually I think it's doing quite well at the moment and would be a loss. And using the kind of laboratory of the UK to throw around some of these ideas. As we've, yes, so we've they may about. not like it being called at that sort of, we're going to make Scotland a guinea pig to go first. That's got a bad history, I think. But <laughs> Thank you. Thank, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But look, thanks all for this uh, really um, fascinating exchange. Uh, obviously, these themes are going to keep going week after week. But thank you very much for grappling with them this week. That's Danny Finkelstein, John McTurnan and Jill Rutter. And thank you all for listening too. Inside Briefing is going to be back next week. And our new sister podcast, IFG Live, will keep on bringing you the debates, discussions and conversations that we're doing as we would have done in our building. On the latest episode, do look at it. Uh, Hannah White, our Deputy Director, brings together an expert panel to talk about how Parliament will work in its new semi-virtual form and how it might do even better than it's doing um, this week with its first Zoom Parliament. Do make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one, and you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, is full of lots and lots of comment and reports. So until then, stay safe. See you next week. Bye.